morning, everybody. Hey, welcome to worship today. It's great to be with you. If this is one of your very first times at Faith Community Church, maybe a friend invited you or you're joining us online for the first time, we just want to say a special word of welcome to you. We really are honored to have you with us. And we know it takes a lot to walk into new places like this. So welcome to you. And my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you have any questions at the end of our time together today about what you hear, uh, sincerely, I invite you to reach out uh, to me either online or you can uh, just grab me here after uh, our time together and I'd love to meet you in person as well. Just in case you missed last week, you were up at the cabin or something like that, uh, we've been teaching through the book of Hebrews for a long time and we're actually hitting the pause button for one month uh, to do a, a teaching series called I Am Not Myself. This series is about gender identity, sexual identity, transgenderism, and what it means to follow Jesus in a context like the one in which we live right now. So, surprise, (laughs) just in case you didn't know that. Let's begin with our scripture reading this morning. Our scripture reading today comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 17. You can find that on page 978 if you're borrowing a Bible from under the chairs in front of you. Of course, it'll be on the screens as well, but just in case this is your first time with us, I'm going to read the scripture, and then I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you're invited to respond with us. Thanks be to God, okay? Ephesians 4, verse 17. Paul says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I want to also add Jeremiah 17, 9. He writes, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to share just a little bit about uh, where this series uh, comes from and some of our hopes and our uh, desires for this series before we get started. About two years ago, I picked up a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. The Gospel Coalition was calling it the Book of the Decade, which apparently is a thing, and it was very, very good. I want to share with you just part of the the opening paragraph of that book. Truman writes, The origins of this book lie in my curiosity about why a particular statement has come to be coherent and meaningful. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. 30 years ago, this would have been incoherent. 
Yet today, it's a sentence that many in our society regard as not only meaningful, but so significant that to deny or question it is to reveal oneself as ignorant, immoral, or subject to an irrational phobia. Yet that sentence carries with it a world of metaphysical assumptions. And then in the book, for 400 pages, he traces out the history of Western thought, stretching back to the 18th century, uh, up to the present, to talk about how we got here. So if you've been around Faith Community Church for a while, you know that our preference in preaching is to teach through scriptures. We start in verse 1, and we just go through. It's easier and it's more fun. This series will be different. In this series, we're actually going to try to follow Truman's line of thought. And uh, you really are welcome, by the way, to let me know if you think that is a bad idea, but we are going to finish the series, okay? I just want to share with you how the study and preparation for this month has impacted me and some of my hopes for our time together. Uh, first, understanding how we got here has given me perspective. Sometimes it feels like I live in a dystopian Orwellian novel, like we've all stepped through the looking glass together. I really am not very old, a, a sprightly 42. I can still remember when Senator Barack Obama and Senator Hillary Clinton in a primary debate both pledged that they would not support redefining the definition of marriage. That was 15 years ago. Today, in school board meetings across the country, otherwise serious people are having genuine debates about whether a 17-year-old man should be showering with a 13-year-old girl. Understanding the arc of history has been helpful. I feel like I understand how we got here. I feel like I have a better idea of where it's going. And I think I can sincerely say, I am excited to follow Jesus into the future. And I'm glad to be part of, of a church, of you. I think we'll talk about that in week four. Second, it's been helpful for me to differentiate between the root issues and the fruit issues. Understanding the root issues has helped me to see myself in my gay neighbor. I have never wondered if I was a girl. I've not had romantic interest in men. Neither of those was really available to me growing up. So if those were the real issues, I don't think we would have much that we really could offer the world. But those are just the fruit. The root is much deeper. It's a root that I share with my neighbor and that the Bible says we all share together. So as I've studied, my compassion has grown and I feel like I can say with integrity to my neighbor, I've been there. I am there right now. Could I tell you what Jesus has meant for me? I would love for that to be true or more true for all of us. That's the, the first and the second weeks of this series. Finally, understanding how we got here has helped me to distinguish between wolves and sheep. There's a world of difference between ordinary people who are just trying to cope with life and the larger machinery of the gender and sexual revolution. So, 
There really are people who want to destroy the nuclear family and who hate the church, who think government is better equipped to raise children than parents, and who are hurt so badly that they really would be glad to see civilization burn. So wolves are a real thing. But most people are just trying to cope with life. And they are hurting. And we have to be able to distinguish the difference as a church. Too often we meet sheep as though they're wolves. And less often welcome wolves as though they were sheep. Christ-centered community should be the safest place in the world for people who are struggling to figure out who they are. But we can't be a naive place either. I think that'll be week three. I'll just tell you right now, week three is the fuzziest of all the weeks so far. A friend asked me this week, why are we doing this? When is the last time that the church addressed divorce this directly? Jesus has a lot to say about divorce as well. And his concern, what I heard him saying is, there's a concern here that we would be a church that picks on people who are already part of a herding population in our communities. I thought that's a fair question. And I actually had not considered that. The fact is that gender and sexual identity are just not like anything else in our world right now. I have never had a conversation with someone who said, I think I'm changing my position on divorce. I've decided that these words in the Bible about divorce actually don't mean what they appear to mean. I think that Jesus has embraced divorce. I found a progressive church that affirms divorce. And so I'm going to drive my faith off a cliff over this issue. I've never had that conversation. Divorce is not celebrated annually by every major corporation and media outlet in the country. HR departments do not host annual training for employees on how to get divorced. Teenagers are not invited to join divorce clubs on campus. There is no formal indoctrination on the goodness of divorce for elementary school children. Terrified parents and school boards are not being told again and again that children of divorce will kill themselves, kill themselves, kill themselves. And people wrestling with the pain of divorce are not being told every day, this is who you are now. This is your identity. There is no escape. But it happens every day with gender and sexual identity. Every day. I hope, actually, that this series will address divorce. Because it's about the roots of gender and sexual identity. And they are the same root we will find beneath all our confusion about the meaning of marriage, the purpose of children, what it means to be a person, and so on. So God help us. Okay? The first verse of our scripture reading today said this. Ephesians 4.17 Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. A couple of reminders to set the table this morning. When the Apostle Paul says, I say this and testify in the Lord, he is reminding us of his authority as an apostle of the Lord Jesus. He's reminding us that when an apostle speaks, it is the Lord Jesus speaking. Every word of scripture from Genesis to Revelation is Jesus 
speaking. And that means that it comes then with his own authority and his grace to respond. And what is the word of the Lord? He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. It's a reminder that when we say yes to Jesus, in our baptism, for example, we are saying no to our old way of life. We are literally inviting Jesus to take off our old self and to put on a new self. Or a, a way we would say it maybe today is we're inviting Jesus to take off all of our old identities and to put one new identity in its place. So let's, we, want, we want to be really clear uh, about this. We come to Jesus as we are. You come to Jesus as you are. To attempt to fix yourself before you come is actually a denial of the faith, or at least a misunderstanding of the faith. But please know that when you come, that you are coming to a great king. When you come to Jesus, you are coming to the living God, and you must be prepared to cooperate as he takes away every old identity to give you a new one. It's off with the old self, on with the new. This is a process that every Christian is in the middle of right now, and we invite you to come and enter that process with us. Christ-centered community is about helping one another cooperate with the grace of God as he transforms our lives. Verse 17, uh, one more time, says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So here's another contrast in the scripture reading today. Our old identities are rooted in the futility of our minds, while our new selves, our new identities, verse 23, are being renewed in the spirit of our minds. So futility on the one hand, being renewed on the other. Futile thoughts or futility of mind, is, it's just he's talking about empty thoughts. They're just vanity. They're, there's no substance there. They may sound good, and a lot of smart people may be saying them over and over again. They'll say, studies have shown and so forth. But when you actually look into them, you discover there's nothing there. A, few, a futile thought, futile thinking is like a smoke or a mist. It looks like a real thing. But as soon as you try to grab it or to put the weight of your life on it, just it's just gone. And it can't bear the weight of your life. The new self, meanwhile, Paul says, is being renewed in the spirit of its mind. What exactly does that mean? Verse 20 and 21 are the answer. Paul says, if you look at verse 20, but that is not how you learned Christ. Isn't that an interesting sentence? We expect him to say that's not how you learned about Christ, but he says that's not how you learned Christ. In other words, Paul expects he uses the word assumes, verse 21. He assumes that Christians have been brought through some kind of catechizing and teaching process and the subject matter was Jesus. Jesus is the substance of what they learned and that's how their minds are renewed. So the, 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 catech, the catechizing or the teaching is, you know, this is who Jesus is, 
This is what he's done. Here's our new identity because of what he's done and so forth. Paul also says that Jesus is the teacher. And that's verse 21. He says, assuming that you heard about him. The thing is, in the original Greek, there's no preposition there. It it literally just says, assuming you heard him. So Jesus is the content that renews our minds. He's also the one doing the teaching. So when we open God's word, when you hear it taught, or you read it, or you study it on your own, what Paul is saying is that Jesus himself enters that process. And he's the one that teaches you. I think this is why... He says, you're renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's a weird phrase. He's, I think he's talking about how Jesus uh, teaches us in the spirit and changes the way that we think about things. And finally, Christ-centered community is the place that our minds are renewed. So the new self is renewed because Jesus is the content, Jesus is the teacher, and Christ-centered community is the place. He says we were, we're, we were taught in Jesus as the truth is in Jesus. There could not be a sharper contrast between this and the emptiness or the futility of our old selves, our old way of, of thinking. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that Christianity brings to any culture it encounters is that it strongly affirms that there is an immaterial you. There's an ask, you have a body, okay, that your body is you, by the way, okay? But there is also an immaterial aspect of your being, a soul, a heart, the, an inner emotional space that cannot be explained away just by brain chemistry. The Bible talks about it all the time. It's in our reading today. The spirit of our minds, that's the inner you, the, you know, this emotional space. It talks about, In verse 22, deceitful desires, okay? So in Christianity, your desires matter. The inner space is a real thing. And what you want and what you feel really does matter. It matters to God. It should matter to us as well. The problem is they never tell you the truth. They never tell the truth. The heart is deceitful above all things. There is no one that lies to you as much as you. You can see it in verse 22. It talks about these deceitful desires, or in other words, you have these longings. We all have these longings for love, for connection, for security, for significance, for comfort. I mean, the list is almost endless. All of us have these longings, but they are lying to you. If I could just have X, Y, or Z, I would be happy. There is always a hook in the worm, though. And that's how they they lie to you. and, And that's how it corrupts our lives. So, why does God allow them to persist? Hasn't anyone else ever prayed, God, I wish you would just take X, Y, or Z desire for me? Has anyone ever said that? All the time. God, if you're good, if you're real, if you're there, you know this is bad, would you just take it away? And the answer comes, no. And sometimes those desires and longings are allowed to persist for a long time, decades, years, and longer. Well, 
we see in Scripture, everywhere in Scripture, that our longings and desires are given to draw us, and this is important for today, okay? They're there to draw you up and out of yourself to God. That's why they're there. If you read the Apostle Paul, you read the Psalms of David, you know, they express these tremendously powerful longings of the soul, and what it does is turn them up and out to seek after the living God. There's this, um, the most famous church father, St. Augustine, in the 5th century, wrote uh, a book called Confessions. In the first, and he was a uh, famously, you know, he was a philanderer. And he writes in the first paragraph about these longings, these inner desires in his heart and says, God, you made us for yourself and our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in you. That's why they're there. And there can be no Christian maturity without actually learning. You will never hear me say this again, okay? There is no Christian maturity until you learn to follow your heart <laughs> up and out of yourself and to find what you're looking for in the living God. What happens, so we have, you know, the greatest of all treasures here and, and, the, and the invitation to grow in, from glory to glory and from maturity to maturity and, and from, you know, here into likeness. And we short-circuit that process by channeling our desires into created and, and lesser things. Money and sex and ambition and all these other things. And we get to the end of that road and we find they lied to us. They never delivered what they promised. Now what's happening in our context today is we're going even further and saying not only is this what I want, but what I want defines my identity. It actually defines my personhood. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is invited to speak uh, to a group of Athenian philosophers. And this is what I believe he would say if he were invited uh, to a gay-straight alliance meeting at the high school. He would say something like this. He says, look, I can see that you are really religious. You are after something profound and deep and great. For as I walked around your city, I even saw an altar that said, to the unknown God. Well, friends, I want to tell you about the God your heart is seeking. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples. He isn't served by human hands. He doesn't need anything from us. Actually, he's the one that gives to all humanity life and breath and everything. He created us and then appointed the times and places in which we would live. And this is an exact quote from Acts 17. So that we would seek him and reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So the, the problem in Christianity is not that we long for too much, but that our, our desires, instead of drawing us up and out of ourselves, get derailed by deceitful desires and channeled into these things that never deliver what they promise. And, there, and so, so rather... Rather than stripping you of desire and longing and turning you into a robot or something, he invites you into maturity to, to, to follow your desires up and out of yourself and to discover they're the living God.
That's why he won't just take away these things you keep begging him to remove from your life. Modern Western identities, however, move in exactly the opposite direction. And we can trace this back to a guy named Rousseau and a movement called the Romantics in the 18th century, okay? So now it's history time. Is every, does anyone else like history? Thank you. If you don't, you're going to have a hard time this month, okay? But the Romanticism in the 18th century was an overreaction against the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution. So the Enlightenment had enthroned science and human reason as the answer to all our problems. We're just, we're technology, education, civilization, these are going to finally fix our human problems. Well, then along comes the French Revolution. And it's the first truly atheistic revolution in the history of the world, and it is just awful. It's, this, this is the guillotine, you know, and off with their head, off with their head, if you remember that from seventh grade. The Romantics, so these, these are people like Rousseau, Blake, Shelley, Wordsworth, and so if those names mean anything to you. They were atheists too. Okay, and they saw what was happening. They hated what human reason was doing or what it was producing, but they weren't about to go back to the church looking for insight. And so what they did is they took hold of a half-truth and took it way too far. And the half-truth that they grabbed hold of is the reality of this inner space within humanity, that there is an inner you that can't be measured, that can't be scanned or whatever. It's beyond human reason-ish, okay? Well, they took hold of this, and they said, okay, if human reason gives us the guillotine, we really don't want God, we're going to go within. And this inner space is where we're going to find the truth. This will be the foundation of reality for us. So Jesus says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The Romantics say, no, no, no. It is the seat and the source of truth. So the Romantics believed that humanity, for example, is basically good. That we're born into the world with healthy, natural, pure desires, and it's our parents that screw us up. It's the government that screws us. It's, it's social norms and codes of honor. That's, it's your education that has made you stunted and crazy. Okay? They saw the nuclear family as a threat. They especially hated Christianity. They thought education was harmful. Anything that could get in the way of expressing those innate natural desires is a problem for the romantics. And they taught that the public performance of your inner desires, that is what makes a human truly human. They thought, that they're the ones who brought the authentic self into fashion. A person unwilling or unable to express their inner desires in the public square is a repressed and inauthentic person. So for the romantics, desire equals identity. Desire defines your personhood and it is the path to true authenticity. Now I think... Uh, next week, we're going to talk more about why this became so fixated 
on sex and gender. But before we do that, just for a second, consider this in light of Ephesians 4.17. This is the cornerstone of American identity. Your feelings and desires define who you are and you cannot be an authentic person if you allow anything to hinder that or get in the way. There is no reality to that. It's it's unstable. It's unlivable. There's no... It's just mist. You try to... You start down that path, living in that, that... And you discover there's nothing there. So today... It isn't uncommon, for example, for a 12-year-old to come home from school one day and announce that he is bisexual. He's never been on a date. He's never kissed anyone. He's never so much as held someone's hand in a romantic way. But he has strong feelings of attraction to both boys and girls in his class. We used to call this friendship or even love. But he's been to a meeting and learned the new taxonomy of of sexual identity, and these feelings now are who he is. So three days ago, he's just another boring white kid. Now he has a bold new identity that makes him part of an oppressed and celebrated sexual minority. And, this, and it's reinforced and celebrated constantly in all of our entertainment, all the stories we tell on TV and in movies and so on. Again and again, the message is an authentic life comes from within you. So the romantics, really, we could say, are the birth of the modern pride, pride movement. But our scripture reading says it's actually much, much older than that. And we see this same awful feedback loop. Every one of us finds within ourselves an incredibly complex mix of desires and feelings. Okay? So I can just say categorically, it is not possible for you to follow your heart. Because within your heart are all kinds of desires at war with each other. I want to be a billionaire. I want to be happily married and have six children. You're probably not, those are not going to both fit in your life, probably. Man, if you pull that off, wow. But generally, all of us have these battles. You're not, you cannot follow your heart because your heart is sick and doesn't know what it wants all the time. And what you desire is an incredibly complex mix of hundreds of factors. Things your parents did to you, your school did to you, traumas you've experienced. Uh, They're they're saying 8% of it is genetic. Uh, There's a million things that make you the person that you are. So Tim Keller kind of has made famous this thought experiment. He says, let's let's take a 22-year-old Anglo-Saxon warrior from 13th century England. And in his heart, he finds two desires. One is is aggression and a desire to hit people and take their stuff. And every time someone steps on his toes, insults his mother, whatever it is, he just wants to lash out in rage against that person. The other desire he finds within himself is a desire for romantic relationships with other men. He will probably live into one 
and not into the other one. Take the same Anglo-Saxon warrior, set him down in Manhattan in 2023, and he will say, I need therapy for this anger issue, and this is actually who I am now. So it is, it is radically oversimplified to say that what I desire, my sexual and romantic desires, this is my true self. It just doesn't work. There are, it, for the romantics and every voice in our culture, the message over and over is take control of your life. Don't let anyone tell you who you are. It's your desires that define who you really are and this is the path to freedom. And over here you have Jesus saying, if anyone would follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. We are, we are talking about two radically different religions. Two completely different understandings of personhood, freedom, and identity. One is empty. There's no reality to it. The other is the Lord Jesus. And the challenge in our generation is to decide who we will believe. The path of unbelief is described in verses 17 through 19 in our reading. Unbelief embraces the empty promises of the romantics and our understanding gets darkened and then our hearts grow hard. We've talked a lot about that in the last few months. It culminates in verse 19 where it says, they have become callous, hard-hearted, and have given themselves up to sensuality. Paul is not saying, okay, that this is going to be true of every person that embraces a false identity Every single person in this room has embraced a false identity at one time or another. All probably every person in this room, including your speaker, is embracing a false identity. We don't even know. Okay, has anyone else woken up at 42 and, and then suddenly you realize, I've been believing a lie for 40 years, okay? So probably there are still false identities. So Paul isn't saying every single person that embraces a false identity does this. He is just describing for us though, this is the trajectory of life in unbelief. And this is where it leads. This word, when it says they've given themselves up to sensuality, that word sensuality is defined in the Greek dictionary as public indecency of a shameless kind. And it has a sexual connotation to it. In other words, he's talking about the ancient equivalent of a pride parade. This is pride. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to, do, I'm going to be who I want to be. And no one, not my family, not my friends, not even my own DNA, certainly not God in heaven, are going to tell me or dictate to me what is real. Because I define that now. Pride is a religion that draws people away from the love of God with false promises, a false gospel, and ever multiplying identities, false identities. So Rosaria Butterfield is always careful to say, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. That is the root issue. It is at the root of every single person 
listening to me now? Will I believe what God says about me? What he says is true. Or will I believe the promises of a false gospel? Paul assumes that every one of us has walked in false identities and then learned Christ. Had Christ begin to teach them and had Christ come and remove your old self and put a new self on. So this is simultaneously an instantaneous event. You come to Jesus and he removes your, he, he fatally wounds your old self. And at the same time, it is a putting on and putting off that is a lifelong process in which we participate by the grace of God. Every Christian is experiencing this. Every Christian is working through unbelief. Every Christian is learning to trust Jesus with the things they long for. Every Christian has to learn to bring their desires under the word of God and to say, this is not what I wanted. This is not what I've prayed for. But this is what you say. Okay. I will believe you, God. Rosaria Butterfield again, sort of, she wrote the book on how gender and queer theory should be implemented on university campuses. She lived as a wolf for a long time. She describes her experience of worshiping in a Christian church for the first time as an adult. So she'd become friends with a pastor and finally decided to go for research, she told herself. It was a little church. She felt totally out of place, but she began going week after week, and she went in assuming that she would be the only one in the room that God was asking the impossible from. She went in assuming she's the only person in the room that God was asking to do hard things, that following Jesus for her would mean losing her lover, disappointing and losing the community she had, losing her job, and she assumed that everyone else was there because this was easy. What she discovered as she got to know especially the women in that church is that every single one of them had things God was taking off and putting on. Every single one of them had longings and desires that were going unmet and into, for which they were trusting God. Some of them even harder, she says, than romantic and sexual desire. So in the words of Ephesians, she was entering a Christ-centered community where she learned Christ. She was discovering the truth that is in Christ and seeing what it looks like in people's lives. What is the Christian answer to the gospel of pride and unbelief? It's faith. That's it. The Christian answer is faith. Every single one of us have things in our lives Jesus is asking you to take off and to put on. Things you long for to which God has said, not now or not ever or not in this life. Is this true for you? Are you walking by faith or are you here because it's easy? If you're walking by faith, 
If you really are in touch with the things Jesus is doing in you, the things he's teaching you, the ways he's shaping you, then you can say to your neighbor with integrity, I have been there. I am there right now. This is what Jesus is doing for me. I want to say a quick word to teenagers especially today. If you're a teenager, I am assuming that every single one of you have close friends or loved ones who have embraced a sexual or gender identity that is drawing them away from the love of Jesus. And you love them. And you can see that they are in pain. And the idea that your faith would add to that pain is unbearable for you. And you are sitting here thinking to yourself, I just want to love my gay friend. I want you to love your friend too. I cannot even tell you how much I want you to love them. But Jesus says, love rejoices in the truth. And all of us, sooner or later, have to come to a place where we answer the question, will I believe what God has said about gender and sexuality? This movement, the gender identity and sexual identity movement, is the defining issue for your generation. And if you want to love your friends, you first have to answer the question, will I trust Jesus, whatever he says? And will I trust him to teach me how to love my friend? So this is the second service, you know, the real service. Now I've gotten all this feedback. (laughs) I've had a lot of people approach me between the services. And all of them are... So someone who's retired uh, and a ninth grader and everybody in between, they're all asking the same question. I love my granddaughter. I love my friend. I love my brother. What do I do? It's just not simple. But Jesus knows what to do. And every, every situation is so different. But until you have resolved in your heart I will trust God no matter what. You are going to limp. The prophet Elijah says, you're going to limp between two opinions. So I just, if you're a teenager, I just want to say to you, there has never been a generation with as much empathy as you have, with as much compassion as you have. You could do awesome things. God has made you for awesome things, but you must decide Well, I believe what God says about this. Then you're ready to love your neighbor. I want to share one story and then we'll be done. One of the resources that we're going to post online for you is a podcast interview with Laura Smaltz. Laura is a woman who lived as a man for almost 10 years. She grew up in what I would describe as a zealously nominal Christian family. I mean that her parents were churchgoers, but it was kind of a works-based prosperity gospel. And Laura had a particularly painful relationship with her mom. It was just very, very, very hard. And it drove her to seek comfort in relationships 
with men. She wanted so much to feel loved and wanted by men, but instead they would just use her over and over and over again until she got to the place in her early 20s where she no longer wanted to be a woman at all. It was too painful, too scary, too vulnerable. And of course, the gender identity movement came alongside with the the promise of a new life, a new identity and a new self. And so she embraced that identity. She changed her name, changed her pronouns, changed the shape of her body with testosterone injections. She had her breasts removed, grew a beard. She became all but indistinguishable from a biological man. She shares about the night very early on when she told her parents that she was going to do this. Of course, they were devastated. They offered to pay for counseling, to get her to see a pastor, to do anything that needed to be done to help her. And she says, quote, I did not want help. I didn't want to admit that it was possible to change the mind or be healed or to embrace being a woman because I didn't want to be a woman. There was so much pain there. I didn't feel any value as a woman. I would rather die. And so in the same breath, she says, I'm telling them how hateful they're being and how they're so judgmental and this and that, but I knew this was one of the times I felt most loved by my parents. I remember the pain and the sorrow in their eyes. I knew that they were giving me very rational, logical arguments, but I did not care. I wanted what I wanted. I was in so much pain. I don't think I could have talked about it. I didn't want to talk about it. Over the next six or seven years, Laura's relationship with her parents basically ended. She didn't want anything to do with them, but they would continue reaching out on birthdays and so on and and letting them know they were there. She continued her transition. On the few occasions when they were able to be together, like at birthday parties and stuff, her parents tried hard to listen, tried hard to ask better questions, but she wasn't having it. Laura says what she wanted from them was to affirm and celebrate what she was doing, and they couldn't. She was being so honored and so celebrated in the gender movement. She was praised as a hero. Meanwhile, she says her parents are the only people in her life who would not acknowledge she was a man, and she hated them. She hated them and told them again and again how hateful they were being to her. Somewhere in the midst of this, because of what was happening with Laura, her mom encountered Jesus for real for the first time. Somewhere in the darkness of those years, Jesus became real to Laura's mom. Here are Laura's words again. She says, we did not have a great relationship. It was very shallow, not very real. But I began to see that Jesus was not just what they did anymore or what they believed. He began to be who they were. And they were so filled with the spirit of Jesus, it began to spill out of them. And they weren't preaching at me anymore. They weren't even really focused on me anymore. I think my parents for so long were focused on me and so focused on trying to fix me. If we can just fix her, It was like their Christian duty to fix their child and everything would be okay. But they realized they couldn't fix me. And they began to really surrender to Jesus. And they began to really cry out to God for me and surrendered me into his control. And that was the turning point for Laura. She says that she began to see in her mom a peace that she had never known in her own life. 
that she was not discovering as a man. And it's what led her out into Jesus. I share that to say before Ephesians 4, 17 through 24 can mean much to the world, it will have to mean something to us. That Jesus wants to take off your old self and put on the new and that he can be trusted. Jesus can be trusted in the midst of a sexual revolution. And the best thing that we bring to our neighbors and our kids and our community and school or wherever is our yes to Jesus again and again and again. Would you say yes to him today? Whoever you are, whatever you have done, whatever identities you have taken on, would you say yes to him today? Just know that you come to a great king and he must be that for you. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we have just said that when we open your word, you will be the one that teaches. So I ask for that today. I ask that you would come and teach now. We pray in particular for everyone in our midst, everyone watching online that is struggling to know who they are, to find the desires of their heart in you. Would you have mercy? Would you please teach? We pray also for this up-and-coming generation you would continue to fill them with compassion, empathy, that you would give them also wisdom and discernment and a love for the truth. God, would you do great things in the time you've appointed us to live. We ask in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Let's stand and sing.